A reading from the Gospel according to Mark, beginning with verse 31. Chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now listen, I'm going to tell you something important. I already cleared, I didn't clear the joke with Joe and Joe and Billy, but I already told him I was going to tell a lawyer joke this morning. So if there's any other people in here that's a lawyer and I don't know about it, look, I'm sorry, but I need the joke, okay? They pick on preachers and jokes all the time. Preachers love to eat. Preachers do this. Preachers do that. You know, it's all true. But here, here's, a, here's a story for you. There was a rich man and his three sons are going to inherit his estate and he died. One of them's a lawyer. One's a doctor and the other one is a preacher. His, why y'all laughing? Because it's a preacher joke. <laughs> His dying request to his three sons is that they show their gratitude for all of the money that he's leaving them. And so he wants them to put a portion of it, $10,000 each, and put it in the coffin with him at the funeral. And the day of the funeral comes and each of the sons doodly puts a paper bag in the old man's casket. They meet up for a drink later, Diet Coke I assume. The preacher shamefacedly confesses, I couldn't sleep a wink last night thinking of all the good our church could do with $10,000. Finally, I decided just to put up some wadded newspaper in that bag and surely dad would understand. The doctor sighs in relief. I'm so glad you said that. I couldn't stop thinking about the life-saving equipment our hospital could buy for $10,000. This must have been 1950. So... <laughs> So I also just put some newspaper in the bag. He'll never know the difference. The lawyer wipes his mouth and frowns. I'm ashamed of both of you, he said. Really, I can't believe you guys. It was dad's last request, his dying request of us. And they said, so you actually put the money in? 
He said, of course. My bag contained a personal check for $10,000. Billy, Billy told me a preacher joke in the parking lot, so I knew he would laugh. Listen, that joke is about shame, isn't it? Isn't it? Listen, I, I was in trouble one time when I was a teenager, and I don't remember what it was for. But I remember standing at our dinner table, and my dad was on the other side, and he was talking to me, and I was leaning and leaning against the kitchen sink. And, and all of a sudden, I was wishing he, he would just spank me or something. <laughs> my dad looked at me and said, son, I'm disappointed. And I felt this intense feeling in the pit of my stomach of shame. Y'all ever felt that? Now, the, the other two brothers that put the money in the coffin, they had a sense of shame. They knew that if they didn't do the right thing, that there, in them there would be this kind of reluctance, a kind of reluctance to go on living in happiness, right? That they would be burdened by this overwhelming sense that they had humiliated themselves, even in their own mind. But the lawyer wasn't having none of that. He figured out a loophole. But that's y'all's job, isn't it? But the, what the joke tells us is it suggests that lawyers have no shame. Now, these guys are great men, and I know they have shame. But listen, having a sense of shame is important for us as human beings, isn't it? In our culture, we just miss that. We just act like there's no shame. You can have whatever you want, because as long as you don't hurt somebody else. Have you heard that lately? As long as you don't hurt somebody else. But listen to me, everything you do affects somebody else. Every word you speak affects somebody else. Here's the thing I would like for us to remember as a congregation. If somebody's telling you something on somebody, they're telling people something on you too. You hear me? Be wary of people like that. They have no shame. They have no sense that what Jesus wants from us is to live in perfect humility together. Do you know that Jesus actually expects us to confess our sins to one another? It's in your book. Can you imagine a church doing that? We say, well, we do it every Sunday at communion. Yeah, but don't we just kind of read the words sometimes? I don't because I'm all in touch with how bad I am. And, and my, one of my favorite things every month is when y'all tell me my sins are forgiven. And I've told you that before. And I'm not just doing preacher speak. That's true. I look forward to that every month when you say to me, in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. I need that. Do you? Do you have shame, church? When I read this text, I thought about old Gomer Powell. Remember that guy? Man, I don't know why I thought that was funny when I was a kid, because if I watch that as an adult, it makes me want to throw bricks at my TV. But remember, something would happen. Somebody would do something. He'd say, shame, shame, shame. Right? This text is about shame. In Jesus' culture, shame was a big deal. In our culture, nobody cares. Do what you want. Don't hurt other people. But we've already said, man, that's just not true. If I choose to do something, look at something I shouldn't, buy something I shouldn't, I have supported an industry that shackles people somewhere. Everything we do has an impact on another person. Every single thought we have has an impact on the very least the person that lives in a house with us. Y'all know this is true, don't you? Jesus is calling us to live a life that has shame in it. Not to be fearful of it, but to accept it. 
to cut the cord from pride and let it go. What is the Gospels? What is the the Scriptures? What do the Scriptures tell us about Jesus and shame? Well, Peter, hearing all the scene, all the things that Jesus has done, he's, he's announced that Jesus is the Christ. That happened just before this text. And when Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus starts to redefine for Peter what a Messiah really is. Peter's expecting glory, pomp, and circumstance as they ride into, into Jerusalem and tell Pilate in Rome to get the heck out. He's expecting glory. He's expecting, you know, sitting on a, in, in a throne room with King Jesus for all eternity. He's expecting greatness. But what is Jesus? Says, Jesus says, Peter, listen, all of you, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected by the priest, by the lawyers, by all of them. By all of the people who teach us how to follow God, they're going to reject me. And not only are they going to reject me, they're going to humiliate me and they're going to kill me. And Peter says, no, Lord, not you. You're the Christ. And what did Jesus say? Pony up, Roman Ranger, you're right. No, get behind me, Satan. Peter was doing the same thing that the devil had done to Jesus in the desert, to tempt him to attain the glory of God by not following the will of God. And it's the exact same thing that the world tempts us with, to glorify ourselves instead of God. To be consumed with human dignity instead of the greatness of God Almighty. Listen to what the Scriptures have to say about Jesus and shame. Hebrews 12, 2 is one of my favorite verses in the entire Scripture. I'm going to read 2 and 3 to you. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then 1 Corinthians 1, 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why does Paul say that? Because to crucify someone is exactly what the book of Hebrews is saying to us. It was to shame the person publicly. Pilate wasn't just trying to kill Jesus. He had to shame Jesus. So that no one would ever look at him ever again and say, the king of the Jews. The purpose of the cross was to humiliate him, to utterly and completely and in a very sophisticated manner of violence, to completely and utterly empty him of any potential to have any pride at all in himself, any loving regard for himself, to create in him a sense of self-loathing and to create with his image on that cross an image that no one would ever forget and they would know that in the emperor is king and not this dang Jesus. The cross, dear ones, 
is an instrument of shame. It's always kind of seems strange to me then that I like pretty crosses. <laughs> know what I mean? See somebody's pretty cross necklace, we always comment on it. I have a plywood cross I bought at Cokesbury a long time ago that I wear when I preach sometimes. I love it. It's pretty. People will pat it and say, oh, that's pretty. And I want to say, no, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. It is pretty. I told somebody I would make a cross for the Lenten luncheons and then I was kind of thinking, I don't want to do that. That's time. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And then Last night at 9 o'clock, guilt got the better of me. And I started building. Built this thing. Um, something on it. And at first, I, I was looking at my materials I had, and I had this, you see that, all these knots in that pine? Y'all see it? I thought, man, I wish I had a longer, clear piece of pine. Didn't have all those knots in it. Then it would be prettier and Man, I wish, I wish I had some Osage or a, or a, or a nicer hardwood to, than just plain old cedar. And then it would be pretty. And then it occurred to me, all these things that I've been reading and that joke and all of this sense of shame, that this thing should compel in us the idea that Jesus was shamed for us. And I thought to myself, why am I trying to make it pretty? And then I wished I had some big timbers that I could cut and drive nails in, maybe hang a piece of cloth on, maybe put a bunch of red paint on it and put some blood on it, make it look as ghastly as I could. And I thought, but all the people at the Linton luncheon would be insulted. Let that sink in for a minute. We have forgotten what the cross is in a lot of ways. It is the means of our salvation. It is the instrument that God allowed to be used to affect our salvation from sin and death. And it's our sin and our death that compelled Jesus to go to that cross. Did you hear the writer of Hebrews say, For the joy set before Him to liberate us from sin and death and to abide by the perfect will of God. By the perfect will of the Father, Jesus allowed himself to be humiliated in front of the Roman power authorities, in front of the priests, in front of his own priests, in front of the priests who prayed to him in the temple, in front of the people who had followed him, in front of his mother. He allowed himself to be beaten and stripped naked and flayed open in his back, nailed to a tree and lifted and spat at and laughed at and scorned. Come down if you're the Messiah. If you're the king, you wouldn't be on that post, Jesus. How dare we ever have pride in a church? How dare we ever be so committed to our opinion of how something should be done that we'd be angry with another Christian? How dare we ever let pride seep into our worship when our Lord gave up every pride? and was humiliated for us. That's what's going on in this text, dear ones. Peter doesn't want to risk humiliation 
by following this Jesus into Jerusalem and seeing him put to death. He's given all he had. He left his business and his family behind and followed this Jesus into the desert. The last thing Peter wants is to be put to shame and humiliation when this Jesus is killed. But what does Jesus say? Peter, if you would save your life, you must lose it. The Greek word is the word psyche. It gets translated soul or life depending on which version of the Bible you're using. But you might as well call it your psyche. Dear ones, if we refuse the humiliation of the cross, our psyche will be an absolute hell of a mess. Because we're choosing to serve sin instead of Jesus. Jesus said, John 12, 25, unless a kernel of wheat fall into the ground and die, it remains but a single kernel. It bears no fruit. Dear one, if you would have a fruitful life, we must fall at the feet of this instrument of torture and humiliation. We must take up our own cross and follow this Jesus. We must. There is no other way. All of your good behavior you're so proud of will amount to nothing in the judgment. Paul says it will be as menstrual rags before a holy God. Are you ashamed of Jesus, church? That's what this text asked me this week. Preacher, are you ashamed of this man who hung on a cross? Or is he your Lord? That's a heavy question, isn't it, church? So I built a cross and I wanted to make it pretty. And then I realized that was a bunch of turdish nonsense. I should have been trying to make it as ugly as I could. But I bring it here today to ask you that as you come to the Lenten luncheons this week, that you come with humility to remember the shame and humiliation of Jesus. To prepare ourselves for the vindication of His suffering and the resurrection. I don't mean to bring you down. But our Lord said if we were ashamed of Him, He would be ashamed of us. And I said, God, I don't want Jesus to be ashamed of me. Let it sink in. And I hope, dear ones, that you will never look at a piece of cross jewelry the same ever again. Remember what the cross is. One commentator said this, If we could imagine ourselves into the time of Jesus or even the time of the followers three or four decades later, we could not miss the atrocity of a crucifixion. We would know the utter absurdity of a Messiah executed on a cross or of Jesus' preposterous expectation that would-be followers would pick up their own cross.
When Jesus tells you to pick, take your own cross, he's not talking about that coworker that gets on your nerves or your child that drives you crazy. He's not talking about bearing the cross of modern American politics. Oh, this is my cross to bear. Dear ones, he's calling you to come and join him in the humiliation and shame that the world projects on people who claim that there's a different way to live than the way the world would have us live, that we can live in peace and love and care for others, and that we need not be threatened by that, that we can lay down our personal opinions and wants long enough to love one another in the name of Jesus Christ. And not be ashamed. That was a lot for the preacher to think about this week. I hope it gives you something to think about as well. May God bless you as you do so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.